This morning we continue our series on the marks of a disciple. And today's topic I think is perhaps the most fundamental of all for it deals with the way in which God most frequently chooses to reveal himself to us and that is through his word. So let's prepare our hearts this morning as we come to to open his word. Father God, our Bibles, they have your fingerprints all over them. And that is why we love them. They contain your word to us and your word is precious. It is food for our souls. Forgive us, Lord, when we have feasted on a diet of junk food for the soul or when we have willingly chosen to starve over feasting on your word. Would you speak to us this morning, Lord, awaken in each one a renewed longing for your word? Amen. Well, how well do you know your Bible? In ancient Jewish culture, children began their formal education at the age of six. So at the age when our children are learning to count to ten on their fingers, learning their ABCs and sitting at the feet of a teacher who's reading them nursery stories, Jewish children would attend a school known as Bet Sefer, House of the Book. And it was here that they would be taught to memorise the entire Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. These books contain God's law and they contained the early history of the Jewish people. And they would graduate at the tender age of 10 with the Torah embedded into their brains. All 79,847 words memorised. That's a challenge for us. But perhaps their most important lesson happened on the first day of class. Because according to tradition, on the first day of class, the rabbi would smear honey on their slates and instruct the young students to lick the slates clean whilst reciting the words of Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Today we'd have a name for that. We'd call it some form of experiential learning, a stimulation of the senses designed to demonstrate that to follow God is to love his word, to long for it, to desire it as much as we humans desire something sweet on our tongues. To follow God is to love his word. That was the message of these teachers to their young students and as he so often did, Jesus took a teaching that was already embedded in their brains and he built on it. He reinterpreted it and he fulfilled it. To follow God is to love his word. The ancient teachers of the Torah certainly had that much right but Jesus would really bring that teaching to life. What about you? To follow God is to love his word. Do you love his word? And if you 
answered yes to that question, as I hope most of you did, could you prove it? Let's say, for example, that we lived in a country where it wasn't a crime to own a Bible, but it was a crime to read it. Would there be enough evidence to convict you of a crime? And if you were convicted, would it be a slap on the wrist for some sort of petty crime? Perhaps you were feeling down last week, so you took the Bible off the shelf and flicked through for some encouragement. Or would you be convicted on hardcore charges of being a lover of God's word? Think back over the past week and gather together in your mind all the evidence that could be brought against you from that week. What scriptures did you memorise in the past week? What state is your Bible in? Is it covered in a layer of dust? Or is it well worn and flicked through? If there was CCTV footage from your house, how many hours of that footage would see you with your nose buried in the scriptures? What other Christian literature did you read or listen to during this past week to help you in your study of God's word? With whom did you discuss scripture or wrestle over difficult passages? Have you been praying using God's word this week? Is the case against you watertight or is the evidence at best circumstantial? Our passage today is very short, only two verses, but two verses that pack a lot of punch. They come from John 8, 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now for me, the hardest part about that saying of Jesus is not what Jesus says, but what he doesn't say. It's that which he implies. From verse 31, we know that Jesus is speaking to those who have already believed him. What he's telling them is how they can know if they are truly his disciples. So what's not explicitly stated there but is strongly implied is that it's possible to be an untrue or a false disciple. We might call that a phony today. So let's backtrack a little bit just to get a bit of context around these two verses. It's always dangerous just to take a couple of verses and um, not look at what led up to them. Towards the end of chapter 7, the unbelief of the Jewish leaders is exposed when the chief priests and the Pharisees confront the temple guards and ask them, have you also been deceived? And by that they mean by Jesus. Have you also been deceived by Jesus? Then in chapter 8, Jesus faces increasing opposition from the Pharisees when they challenge the validity of his testimony. Jesus goes on to explain to the crowds that if they do not believe he's the one he claims to be, they will die in their sins. And then a summary verse comes in chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And our passage for today comes straight after that. 
As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now in many of our modern Bibles, there's a section heading between verse 30 and verse 31. And that often leads us to believe that they're entirely separate events. They are not. And we know they're not because of that word, so, at the beginning of verse 31. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There was no section headings in the original manuscripts. They're put in there to make the Bible more readable, but don't allow them to confuse you. Clearly, there had been a very good response to Jesus' teaching here. Many believed in him. But Jesus doesn't presume here that all who profess to believe in him are actually true or real believers. And if you want a living illustration of that, you need to look no further than the football field. Here are some true believers. They're true believers of the Manchester United football team. They're all wearing the gear. They've got the flags. They're yelling and shouting for their team. They are all proud, passionate, paid-up supporters of this team. But they're not the only people at the game. There are others at the game. Take this lady, for example, asleep on her husband's shoulder. She bought a ticket. She went to the game. She probably told all her friends at work that day that she was going to the big game. But she's not really into the experience, shall we say. Now, my husband is a huge basketball fan, many of you might know. But for many, many years, every Friday night or Saturday night, whenever the Melbourne Tigers were playing at home, we would traipse into the city and attend one of the three big stadiums where basketball was played at the time. Bruce bought me all the merchandise. I looked the part. I never missed a game. I was a paid-up member. I even knew most of the players' names. How could you not? They were screamed out throughout the game by the court announcer. But I had no interest at all in basketball other than spending time with Bruce. In fact, at the end of the game, I could never tell you what the score was and probably only about 50% of the time could tell you actually who won the game. Bruce, in contrast, could speak in great detail about every play that had been made and about which players had performed well and which did not. And it never ceased to amaze me how time could actually appear to stand still during those games. There were four 12-minute quarters, but the game took over two hours because they kept stopping the clock all the time and calling timeouts. And so I can sympathise with this lady because I would have loved to have done that, put my head on my husband's shoulder and just waited out the torture. But if you did at the basketball, your face would have ended up on the big screen <laughs> with everybody cheering at you. So I never did that. So I developed ways to amuse myself. My mind would wander. I'd think about what I had to do for that week. And I'd sort of study people in the crowd and at the psychology of how people were interacting with each other. And on more than one occasion, I would say to Bruce at halftime, oh, you should go over there and speak to 
so-and-so, someone from his work or someone that he used to play basketball with. And he was always amazed that I could have picked that person out of a crowd of 10 or 20,000 people. But such was my lack of interest in the game that it wasn't hard. For all intents and purposes, I looked like the committed Melbourne Tigers fan, but I was a phony. And Jesus, it seems, knew that there would be phonies amongst those who would believe in him. And so he gives us a very simple way to self-assess whether our faith is real or not. And we'll come to that in a minute. But before we do, we need to be very, very clear about what a disciple is. If we're going to be a true disciple, we need to know what Jesus meant by the word. Now, I can see how it would be easy to read this passage and reason, well, Jesus is talking here to people who have believed in him. They're people who must have already put their faith in him. And he's telling them how to know if there's true disciples. So maybe the Christian faith has sort of steps in it. Step one, you become a believer. And then something happens somewhere along the line, you get to step two, you're a disciple. And then you continue on and step three, you become a disciple maker perhaps. Perhaps that's what the Christian faith looks like. I could see that that could be what what you might read from this passage. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying here. Instead, rather than three distinct categories, Jesus is talking about one long, continuous discipleship journey. So each one of these is a disciple. They may be at different stages on their journey. Some are just new disciples. Others have been following for a long time. But they're all disciples. What proof do I have of this? Well, he says it by his choice of words. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He doesn't say, now you're a believer, then if you abide in my word, you will be a true disciple. He doesn't say, if you abide in my word, you'll eventually mature and become a disciple. He says, you are truly my disciples. There's only one category of believers. All believers are followers or students of Christ and they are all on a discipleship journey. So true disciples are the same as true believers, which is the same as true Christians. All are followers and students of Christ. However, whilst there's only one category of Christian in the world, the world is made up of three categories of people. There are true disciples, and there are non-disciples, and then Jesus introduces a third category here. It seems that Jesus knew that amongst the many who professed belief in him, there would be some for whom this would just be a one-off profession of belief and nothing else. There might be others who might believe some of the things that Jesus said, but would never accept the full gospel. Still others might make an outward profession of faith, but their faith would not go deep. It would make no changes in their life. So the third category that Jesus introduces here is that of untrue or false disciples. 
They're like me at the basketball, along for the ride, but with very little interest or commitment to the game. False disciples might be happy to attend church every week. I was happy to go to the basketball every week. They might never miss a Sunday. But church attendance doesn't make anyone a true disciple. Here in our passage today, Jesus provides the criteria, or at least one of them, that marks the true disciple. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, in case there should be any confusion here, let's make one thing very clear. Abiding in Jesus' word will not make anyone a disciple. That's not what Jesus is saying. No amount of hard work on our part will ever make us into a disciple. That would be a faith by works type mentality and that was never what Jesus taught. He taught faith by grace alone. Instead, abiding in his word is the evidence that proves you are a disciple who loves the Lord, who wants to do all you can to know him more and is willing to commit to his teaching, allowing it to change and shape you over the long haul. So in that respect, I guess you could say a disciple who doesn't read their Bible is a bit of an oxymoron. Now, I did my university studies at the University of Melbourne, but I graduated from there a long, long time ago. I'm no longer a student of the University of Melbourne, and it would be crazy for me to claim that I am. Even if I went into the university shop and bought the hoodie and put it on and walked around in it, even if I went into the bookshop and bought some textbooks, even if I went into the university every day of the week, I still would not be a student of the University of Melbourne. In the same way, it would be crazy for anyone to claim that they were still a disciple, which is a student of Jesus, if they were no longer being taught by him. Jesus has no graduates. He only has students. And since the Bible is the predominant means by which we can know the mind of Christ and be taught by him today, if we aren't reading our Bibles, then we can't claim to be his students and therefore we're not disciples. Discipleship means being a lifelong student of Jesus. And that's what Jesus means when he says, abide in my word. The word abide means to remain. We're to remain in his word. Now, obviously, it's not possible to be reading our Bibles 24 hours, seven days a week. We all have to sleep, we all have to eat, we all have to go to work, and we have a multitude of other things that we need to attend to as well. Remaining in God's word is not about having your nose in the Bible 24 hours, seven days a week. But it does mean that you never stop learning from your Bible. It means that you remain constantly under the authority of the Bible. It means that you walk constantly in its light. It means that you never cease to be persuaded by its truth, that you continue to draw your strength from it, 
you continue to apply it to your lives and you thirst for its wisdom 24-7. And you can't do any of those things if you're not regularly reading it. Being a student, any kind of student, requires discipline. At the college where I'm currently enrolled, every class is made up of two kinds of students. Those who are enrolled for credit and those who are auditing a subject. The students enrolled for credit pay full fees. They must attend every class and a record is kept of their attendance. You might get one off for being sick or something. Those students must complete all the assignments and they must sit all the exams. Audit students pay very minimal fees. No record is kept of their attendance. They don't do assignments and they don't sit exams. And you might say, why doesn't everyone just audit, audit the subjects? It sounds much easier. And it is. But you don't get any credit for being an audit student. And it has been my experience from those that I have known that audit students are also much more likely to attend irregularly and they're much more likely to drop out altogether. I made two lovely friends in one of my classes and I thought, this is going to be a great semester with these two. But by the fourth week, both of them had disappeared, never to be seen again. Now, I'm talking in general terms here. I've met some lovely people who are auditing subjects. They do tend to be mostly older people who go back to college after they've retired and just want to be immersed in God's word and be around people who love studying God's word. But in general, when there's not the commitment there through paying fees and everything else, the accountability, there's a strong tendency not to turn up, to become irregular and to eventually drop out. So let's not audit the Bible, picking it up every now and then when we feel like it. Commit yourself this year, if you've not already done so, to a disciplined approach to reading the Bible. And then prepare for your life to be changed because it will be changed. It can't not be changed if you're doing that. Now, the, the program KYB, Know Your Bible, was launched by Pastor Glenn in this church on Thursday morning. Many of you were in attendance there. And at that time, he spoke of the power of four effect. The power of four describes the dramatic changes that occur in a person's life when they engage with scripture at least four times per week. I've just got a short clip here that, that further explains that. So we'll there was a recent study by the Center for Bible Engagement where they pulled 40,000 uh, uh, general population in the U.S. from 8 to 80, and they just wanted to see how we are engaging with scripture. Right. And they discovered something that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. It, they weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. Um, when we're in the scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday, that's pastor saying you open your Bible, we hear the message, one time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'll, I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now at three times a week, there was a blip on the map, like there was a heartbeat. Something happened, again, a heartbeat. Okay. But here was the profound discovery. 
When we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. You would expect that it'd be one, two, th- I mean, there'd be a gradual incline right. on the effect and impact that would have in your life, but it was literally one, two, three, four, something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow. Ang- four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. Uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that, that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in Scripture? If they're in the Scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's Word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, That's amazing right there. And that research was conducted by the Center for Bible Engagement using a survey of 40,000 people in the States. And when they extended that survey to 400,000 people across 24 countries, what these researchers found was that the life of someone who engages with scripture at least four times per week looks radically different from the life of someone who does not, regardless of where you live or what your cultural background is. These people were 228 times more likely to share their faith with others 407% more likely to memorize scripture, 59% less likely to view pornography, 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. So what this tells us is that there were social, moral and spiritual benefits to that as well as being better equipped to carry out the Great Commission. By contrast, people who did not engage with the scripture most days of the week, i.e. those who were less than four days a week, were found to have lives which were statistically the same as non-believers, socially, morally and spiritually. Doesn't that provide the hard evidence to support those words of Jesus, if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples. Disciples or students of Jesus will become more like Jesus because when we read the Bible, we imprint Jesus into our minds over time. The mind of Christ forms in us. And when that happens, it's impossible not to change. Abiding in the word of Jesus is important because it is the evidence that our faith is real and that we are true disciples of Jesus. So what of you? Is there enough evidence to convict you of being a lover of God's word? Are you truly a disciple, a student of Jesus or not? Being a student is not easy. It takes commitment and self-discipline. But like anything, if it is a priority for us, we'll make it happen. And Jesus doesn't leave us alone in our endeavours, for he's left us the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit to guide us in his teaching. And so prayer will always be an important part of Bible study. There are many, many helps available to assist you to abide in God's word. Join a Bible study group. But if you do, make sure it's one that actually studies the Bible and isn't there predominantly as a social group. Nothing wrong with socialising, but don't call it Bible study. Follow a daily Bible reading plan. Now, there are hundreds of them out there. You can see one of the pastors if you'd like one printed out for you, but you can get them online. You can buy them through Christian bookshops. Some of them will take you through the Bible in a year or others focus a bit more slowly book by book. If you're doing that, make sure it's a plan that is more than just a devotional thought that someone's prepared. You know the ones where they give you one verse and then someone gives you a long story from their life. I'd call that sort of life support for Christians. It's what you use when you need something to keep you connected, but it's not really Bible study. It's just a lot of it's a bit of fluff. Um, you might want to consider a Bible reading app on your phone. And there are many of these. Um, Uversion is one that has a Bible reading plan built into it that you can sign up for and it'll guide you through. Um, you could sign up for KYB, which we have just started last week. I'm sure Pastor Glenn would be more than happy for more people to sign up. You might want to attend BSF or take a subject at college. Get a Bible reading buddy. Then both of you can sign up to do the same Bible reading plan and you can discuss the scriptures together and pray for one another in what you've learned. Or you could simply just ask God to show you what to study and then give everything you've got to studying it. Now that approach is not recommended for the undisciplined but it has been my experience that God will not disappoint anyone that really desires to go deep into his word and is prepared to do the hard work to do that. Whatever you do, remember that the object is not just for you to get into the Bible, but for the Bible to get into you and to imprint itself in your mind, for the mind of Christ to form in you, changing you to be more like him. And with that in mind, I want to just finish up with a plug for a fabulous initiative of Vision Christian Media, which is called the Treasury Project. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Um, it commenced at the start of this year and I signed up for it. You can sign up at that uh, website address there if you like. This project seeks to make the heart of every believer a storehouse for God's word. And if you sign up, you'll be emailed every Sunday morning Sometimes it happens Saturday night. I'm not sure how that works, but Saturday or Sunday, you'll be emailed a new scripture to commit to memory for the following week. And they've got all sorts of things in there. You can press a button and get the scripture put on your phone, home screen, or whatever you like. It takes all the work out of figuring out which scriptures to memorise, and it's kind of fun knowing how many thousands of other people are memorising the same scripture as you are each week. If you don't have email, I've asked Meng Mui and she's kindly printed 
some hard copies out for us. They're just by the door. You're welcome to take one. If you do, just be a little bit disciplined because it's overwhelming when you look at the 52 in one go. <laughs> so just make sure you go through slowly one at a time. So far, they've started us off pretty gently. We started with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Most of you would know that already. We've done John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we've progressed through John 3.16, John 1.14, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's 47 more to go for this year. But imagine getting to the end of the year and looking back and knowing that you have embedded in your brain 52 scriptures that you didn't have there before. 2020 is already shaping up to be a year when we at Pathway take discipleship seriously. The rabbis taught their young students um, that to follow God is to love his word. And here Jesus describes true disciples as those that abide in his word. Now... Since he was talking to people who were standing there in front of him, abiding in his word can't mean just knowing it because they knew it. They'd heard him speak it. So the object of our abiding must be more than simply head knowledge. It must embed itself in us and it must change the way we think and we act. And since we don't have Jesus standing here in person to teach it to us, to speak his word, the Bible today is the primary source for us of his word. If you want to be a true disciple, we must study his word so that that word embeds itself in us and changes us. Then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Father, thank you for your word, ancient words, but words that always remain true. Lord, may our hearts be opened this year May we be disciplined in our study of your word and may it embed itself in us. May it change us and make us more like Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing the last song.
present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. May God bless us all as we study his word together. Amen.